electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. John Fort, anchor at CNBC, host for Fort Knox, and I've got something different for you this week. A big conversation about work, as in, where should you work? What kind of company, big or small, young or established? Now, the idea for this episode came from my CNBC colleague, Sharon Epperson, who's just great. Uh, Sharon covers personal finance. I'll often stop at her desk and strategize about work and life. Sharon did a piece on how to land a job at a startup, and I wanted to expand the topic to should you take a job at a startup even if you can't? So I huddled with CNBC producer Evan Falk, as I do every week to talk about Fort Knox Live, and we decided to put a show together. We get Sharon, a couple of top flight venture capital investors, and I wanted to get some students too. I mean, they're the target audience for this stuff, right? So that's what we did. One more thing, and this is important. So we're almost two years into Fort Knox, and it's grown a lot. I want to thank you, the podcast listeners, also the live show viewers on all our platforms, including Facebook, Periscope, YouTube, the CNBC apps on Apple TV and Amazon Fire TV. So for the past two years, I've, not sure if you knew this, I've been basically working on two different digital shows. There's the Fort Knox podcast here and Fort Knox Live, which streams on Wednesdays. The podcast is mostly one-on-one interviews, and the live show is mostly broader conversations tackling culture, technology, society. So I was talking to Evan, the producer, this week, and he was like, why don't we put them together? We should podcast the live shows, and we should stream video of all the interview podcast conversations. And I've been batting this around for almost as long as we've had both shows, and he's right. So we're going to do that. We're going to start doing a lot more of it. You're you're still going to get the one-on-one interviews with top executives and founders, but you're also going to get these conversations with experts digging into what's really going on in tech, the impact it's having on the world, and how you can use that knowledge to get ahead. Do you like the change? Do you not like it? Are you not sure? Drop me a note, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, search for John Fort, follow me, and uh, that's how you can drop me a note. So, here we go. This is Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. Subscribe where you get your podcasts. This week's topic, where to work. My guests are two venture capitalists, Jeff Richards, managing partner at GGV Capital, and Graham Brown, partner at Lair Hippo. Three students, Ahmad Eshkiar, an MBA candidate at Yale, Roni Barak Ventura, a doctoral candidate at NYU, and Raymond Willey, an MBA candidate at Baruch College. And of course, one CNBC colleague, Sharon Epperson. Our conversation starts with a question for an investor. Graham, I'll start with you. You're constantly trying to recruit talent for the startups that you're investing in. But are there some people who should really be well served by working for a larger company first before they go to a startup? I I think absolutely. And part of it depends on uh, risk tolerance, flexibility, Um, and what you're really looking to accomplish and how you're looking to build your career. So a larger company will give you 
a base of skills that will hopefully help you more valuable for that next step, if that is a startup, if that's truly a startup. Uh, if you go into a startup early, I think there are a few things that are really important to, to remember. One being you need to be uh, very self-motivated and okay with not having structured feedback. You're not going to have the same structure at a five to ten person company as you would at a much later stage business. Hmm. You're also probably going to be wearing many hats, right? Where at a later stage company like Google, you'll have one role, you'll be able to specialize, you'll be able to learn that specific skill, and you're going to have a lot of support around you. At that startup, you'll be you know, doing one, th you'll, you'll have that sort of lane, but one day you'll be asked to help on something completely different than what it is you thought you came in to do. And so I think coming in understanding and being very self-aware in terms of what environments you thrive in are very important. Now, Rona, you're at NYU, right? Yeah. Uh, School of Engineering, getting a PhD in mechanical and aerospace engineering. You're not inclined to go to work for, say, a Boeing with that PhD. No, probably not. Um, specifically, my PhD is going to be about rehabilitation and robotics and rehabilitation. And it's a very multidisciplinary field. And that's kind of making me think about what you just said about how in uh, startups you have to start with one lane and then you might have to shift to a different lane. Uh, so I'm wondering if that would be more suitable for people with more multidisciplinary background. Or well, I think um, with your background, and we're, we've invested recently in a number of robotic startups. It's a very, uh, I think, attractive area to invest in. It's an attractive area for growth. And all of those companies are constantly looking for people that fit your profile. And so I, I think because you have such a unique expertise and your PhD is very specific, that that skill set is in high enough demand. You're not going to come in and they'll ask you to do something else. Whereas if you come in a, in a marketing or business development or more sales role, you may have to end up doing a, a fair number of things. I think with, with your skill set, there's going to be a lot of interest. And also you'll kind of, I think, be able to come in and, uh, and really focus. Uh, Jeff Richards, I, I want to bring you in as well. Thanks for joining us from way out there on the other coast. Uh, your thoughts on... Uh, who might be best suited to jump straight into maybe more, more of a startup role versus a bigger company role? And how much does expectations of you know, joining the next Facebook or the next Tesla play in? Should, should somebody who has those hopes of striking it rich within the, in the next five years go that route? Well, we're all hoping to find the next Facebook or Tesla. <laughs> <laughs> Those are pretty hard to find. I think, uh, you know, Graham's advice was, was actually great. If you've got a very specialized area of focus, uh, whether it's in, in a field of computer science or robotics, and you're going to join a company that is specialized in that area, it, it, it may be a great experience for you. For the majority of folks coming out of college or even out of grad school, you know, most companies under 100 employees don't have a lot of structure. They don't have training programs. They, a lot of the managers are first-time managers. And so part of the advice that I give people who are coming out of college, and I meet with quite a few, is to focus on companies that have over 100 employees. So if you want to take something that's, you know, higher risk than going to work for, say, Google or, or Microsoft or Facebook uh, and, and going to be a fast-paced culture with a lot of learning and jumping in with both feet, you know, try and find a company that's maybe over 100 employees. And actually, Andy Ratcliffe, who uh, runs Wealthfront, used to be venture capitalist at Benchmark, who you know, John, 
publishes a list every year. I think it's called the, the 150 Career Launching Companies or something like that. It's on the Wealthfront blog. But it's really a great list uh, where he and his team have kind of defined companies that are on a great trajectory, you know, kind of in that range that I talked about of 100 to maybe 500 employees. They've got some infrastructure. They've got some real management. They've probably got great people running training programs. And the, and the, and the founders have moved beyond the phase where everybody's kind of doing everything. So that's generally a piece of advice that I give. If you're coming out of college and looking for something where you can jump in with both feet and have a great experience, try to focus on companies that are maybe north of that 100 employee mark. And Ahmed, this is probably music to your ears because I know you've had experience working for larger companies and also for really small companies. You're thinking maybe down the line, that sweet spot he was talking about makes some sense. Yeah, I think what Jeff, saying, what Jeff is saying is it really makes sense. Uh, uh, companies of, uh, above 100 employees, they already pass through the starting phase and they have some procedures, but they are not overburdened like companies with plus 10,000 employees. And what kind of work are you looking to do? Oh, that's a good point. I'm mostly looking at transportation. That's my passion, but I'm open to other possibilities if I find them very interesting, if I find the role very interesting and the company, of course. And engineering in transportation? Uh, not necessarily. No, not necessarily. No, because I, I have engineering background, but I started my MBA, so I wanted to uh, a little bit uh, have more responsibilities. And so uh, I want to go to the leadership of the company eventually. So I, yeah, go. I want to go to the management. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Sharon, job market-wise, right now, we all know that at least the unemployment number, mm -hmm. the labor market's tight right now, but. There is this really big skills gap. There are companies looking for talent to fill roles, mm -hmm. and there are people available in the workforce, yes, yes. but a lot of times the people, the roles that they want filled, they can't find the, the people to fill them. That probably doesn't apply that much to the folks we have on this panel. Right. These are the in-demand folks. Absolutely. Give us a sense of the landscape and, and the sort of factors that people entering the job market, well-educated, uh, looking at their options, should, should be considering it in 2018? Well, know that the growth that we're seeing in the job market is still in high tech and, and it's still in skilled jobs, but there may be skills that you've acquired in a larger company, not necessarily even a technology company, that can be transferable. And some of the things that Graham was talking about and Jeff, as well as what some of they already possess, multitasking, being willing to be flexible. No, I'm not just an engineer. I can do a lot of things in sales and marketing because I know that's what it's going to take to get to a leadership role. So the fact that you're showing flexibility, the fact that you're showing that you can multitask, the fact that you're willing to show up at any time, at any hour, and do what needs to be done, all of those things, I think, are ones that Graham would look for, right? I think that's absolutely right. And that's what we look for in the entrepreneurs that we work with. When we come in and invest, there's typically less than 10 people in the company. And so the human element is so, so important. And we're looking for exactly a lot of those traits. We're looking for grit. We're looking for passion. Uh, we're looking for the ability to move really quickly. Uh, when, when we invest, typically we think about investing in getting to that next level, which is usually a follow-on uh, fundraise in 12 to 18 months. And so we need to hire, yeah. hit certain milestones, and do that all really in 12 months so that we can be out in market raising that next round of financing. And to do that, you need a, a really unified team and you need one that moves very quickly. So you have to show you're driven, but as you're doing that, you may not be driven in the industry that you're specifically looking for this job or, in an, or, in, or have any startup experience. But that drive and that tenacity and that, the qualifying 
skills that you are able to have achieved, emphasizing that I think is very important. And that requires a lot of refiguring of that resume that you may have had for the big company. Mm. That now you want to highlight some other things so that you can go not just from being an engineer, which you've done for 10 years very successfully, but now you're able to go and do anything that is asked for in this particular business service unit of the transportation company. Well, let's dig in some more on that because I know you've got some very specific advice on exactly how to land that role. Again, this is Fort Knox Live. We're here at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We are talking about, well, should you work for a startup? Should you work for a big company? And now I want to dig in on if you know that you want to work for a startup, how do you pick perhaps the right one? How do you prepare for that startup interview? And uh, Raymond Willie, you're pretty focused on an early stage company. Right. Talk about your background and what's brought you to that point of knowing that you want to work for a place that's a little smaller and, and earlier on. Um, I think for me, I realized that actually much earlier than most others would think. Even in my current role, I work in investment banking. And when I went in there, I said, one of the first things I said was, I don't want to be doing the same thing every day. You know, I always want to change it up. So my role is currently in operational risk, which involves uh, business continuity planning, cybersecurity. So I'm involved in a lot of different areas. Prior to that, I was in sales for like 10 years. So for me, I like getting involved in a lot of different things. And while being part of these large companies give a lot of structure and a lot of ability to learn, it doesn't necessarily give you that ability to kind of go out and do a bunch of other things. You can, you can do it in small spurts, but when you have more of that ambiguity and trying to figure out a problem, I find that you get more of that in a startup culture than you do in, in a big company. And so that's really uh, what I'm trying to push for, use what I've learned before and start moving in that direction with it. So Sharon, what should somebody like Raymond do to sort of prepare for, for that startup interview or to go and get on the market for a startup? I know you got some tips. Well, the first thing he's already doing it today and probably does it often is networking. Networking with everyone that you already know and everyone that you think you want to know. Mm -hmm. And so how do you develop those network, that network in the startup community? Looking at local universities, looking at uh, local technology organizations. If you're not in a big city like New York or Chicago or Boston or on the West Coast, there are other places that you can go in your local community where there's startup action. And that's what I think is a misnomer for a lot of people, that they think they have to come to New York or they have to go to Silicon Valley to get these opportunities. And that's not necessarily true. Um, the other thing I would say is it's really important to follow the money. So we talked about having, you know, going to a company with 100 or more employees. You just want to really look into the funding and make sure that this is a company that's going to be around and give you the opportunity to, to learn as long as you'd like to. And in doing that, that involves just doing your homework. And, you know, a simple Google search, of course, is great, but going to some of the more specialized publications or looking for jobs that way, I think is very important. And then you really, really want to make the most of that first meeting. The first time that you see someone, you want to know that you've already honed that resume, that it already focuses on the skills that are really going to be quantifiable and of need for that company, um, and that you look the part of the company. You probably may not dress the same way as you do on your Wall Street job <laughs> for the startup, depending right. where it is. You know, if you come to my hometown of Pittsburgh, as, at a tech company, they're not going to dress the same way they do in New York. It just doesn't happen. And I right. think that package, it seems very superficial, but a lot of it is personality and that initial human contact that Graham was, Graham was talking about. So I think that's really important to, to keep in mind okay. because that resume is terrific, but they're also going to figure out, does this person really fit into this company that's just a few people, not that big department that you just came from? Mm. 
Jeff Richards, when, when you are either looking for talent or maybe talent is looking for you, what are some of the best approaches uh, that you've gotten from, from talent, from people who you've maybe ended up recommending for a role at a particular startup when you're out in the valley, somebody approaches you or you're at an event and you end up getting into a conversation? This is the hottest topic in Silicon Valley, John. You know, we built a talent function inside of our firm, as has every other major VC firm. We're working with our portfolio companies every day on these topics. The one thing I'd, I'd add to what we were just talking about is, you know, not only is part of the equation finding the company that you want to go work for, but helping them find you. So if you think about a company with 50 to 100 employees that is starting to look at hiring younger talent, they often don't have much in the way of recruiting in-house. In They're using external search firms. The majority majority of their hires are coming through referrals. So find a way to engage with people who work at that company. Find a way to engage with them on Twitter. Find a way to engage with them on LinkedIn. Find a way to engage with them by writing a blog post about the industry that they're in. So if you've got a set of five or ten companies that you're zeroing in on and saying, hey, those are companies I'd really love to work with, in today's world, with all the things that we have and all the tools that we have online with social media, it's not that hard to get a personal connection to somebody inside of that company. You know, if you go back 20 years ago, you'd have to mail a resume and hope to meet somebody at a cocktail event. Today, it's very easy, and I can't tell you how many times, you know, a CEO or a founder will say to me, hey, we just hired this superstar out of, you know, XYZ who I met on Twitter. Uh, which sounds crazy, but you know somebody will prompt them with a question or a follow or a like or, a, or an interesting fact or data point that they didn't know about, and the next thing you know, they're interviewing for a job and they're starting in two weeks because it can happen quickly. But they don't have the recruiting infrastructure that a big company does to go find you and figure out who you are and why you might be a good fit. So spend part of your time networking, but also spend part of your time targeting specific companies and finding ways to engage with folks inside of that company. Jeff, I think you're absolutely right, and I think doing that social media approach on every social media and then email really makes a difference because you forgot to answer the email because you had so many, you didn't, you didn't respond to this person. Then you see that they actually tweeted about the same thing and that was actually a great link that they included to that blog post. And then you see them on, an, on, on you know, LinkedIn or, and, as well. So all of that, as you then go, delve in and do your own research on this person, really highlights that they're a go-getter, they're driven for this job, they're creative in how they're approaching me, and now maybe we can continue to have a conversation here. Mm. Ronnie, don't mean to put you on the spot, but I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. So what's your, what's your game plan? I mean, you, you could start your own thing maybe, but if you do that, then you need to network with investors. Maybe you could go work for an earlier stage startup. Uh, you're going to be in demand probably, whether it's, um, you know, uh, space startups or drone startups or mm -hmm. what have you. How, how are you going to go about this? Um, it's a good question. I still have to consider the options I have, um, but... I am considering maybe starting my own company. The problem is that I don't know, my background is really scientific. I don't know anything about finance or money management. And I would worry to go into my own business with no knowledge about this kind of things. So I'm kind of wondering if maybe I should collaborate with another person or if maybe all the resources are just available online and I can just learn myself those skills. Um, I don't know. It's Graham, the, the annals of tech history are, are littered with people who either chose the right partner to go into business with or chose the absolute wrong partner. Somebody was business savvy, somebody was tech savvy, and one ended up sort of eating the other. So what should Ronnie do? Yeah, I mean, that is finding the right co-founder. I mean, it's like it's finding the right spouse. It's, it's, it takes time. There's a lot of things that have to click, um, but it's 
it, it is going to create so much value and enable you to raise money much more effectively to have both those pieces in place. And for every Roni profile, there's probably 10 people that have more of a business profile that are looking for you. And so, I, I mean, I think a big part of what everyone's been uh, speaking about here uh, is this component of networking and all the resources that are available now to help with those networking, whether it's through meetups, whether it's using LinkedIn, whether it's Twitter and connecting directly there. I, there, there are so many uh, easy opportunities that are self-service that allow you to get out there and find the right people. And then it's meeting people that share this sort of same, I mean, I think it's being aligned on a, on a mission and culturally aligned and then skill sets that don't directly overlap. And I think about trying to find the right person that way. And New York's a great place to do that. And NYU has unbelievable resources as well for helping make those connections. Yeah. Uh, Jeff, uh, Jobs and Wozniak work together, I guess, lived in the same neighborhood. The WhatsApp guys, I think, worked at Yahoo together. There are all kinds of ways that people meet up. But is there something to be said for entering the workforce, at least for a while, as a way to find a person in that role? I mean, if you're in a technical role and you find the best person in a business role who's also entrepreneurial, is that a way to do it? Or should you not enter the workforce working for somebody in order to find somebody to go start a startup with? Well, or you could be like Patrick and John Collison and, and work with a relative, which, which you know, is challenging. But you really want to get risky. Yeah. No, I think, look, uh, Graham was giving uh, some very good advice, which is, you know, the, the, the most important thing in a co-founder relationship is trust and a shared, a shared value system and, a, and, a, and view of where you want to go. But there are tons of people out there with great business experience who would love to partner up with great people with technical experience. The hardest thing that we see in those early stage companies is just shared vision, shared trust, shared values. Do you come from a similar place in terms of what you want to create? You know, sometimes folks get into arguments over money or they're, they're naive about the actual amount of work that has to, has to get done. And we see, you know, very often we see founders split up at the speed sta seed stage or the Series A. But I think that you know, for me, I can tell you personally, I started my first company when I was 25. That first three or four years experience that I had prior to founding that company was invaluable. I went to work for a, a large consulting firm in PwC. I worked in Hong Kong. I worked in Costa Rica. I got a bunch of experience that I didn't know at the time was great experience, but it, it really helped me once it came time to start that, that first company. Uh, ultimately, that company wasn't successful, but my second one was. And, and both of those experiences helped me in what I'm doing today as a, as a venture capitalist. So my advice to folks is always, get in and try and work with great people. And I think that's, you know, if I go back to the advice I gave earlier, those companies that have gotten to 100, 100 employees are well-funded and are on a good trajectory, those tend to be great places to go join because you can pick up mentors and advisors and folks that will be lifelong friends that will help you when you do decide to go maybe start a company or, or take that big risk in joining something that's really, really early stage. Grand PayPal mafia, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, <laughs> people who wanted to start their own thing eventually joined PayPal and oh my goodness, if you just take a look at Elon Musk, Reid Hoffman, uh, the YouTube guy, I mean, Max Levchin, so many people ended up coming out of there. Is there a lesson there? I, I think absolutely. And you're seeing some of those, more and more of those in New York too, Flatiron Health more recently, Moat the other year. You're seeing these larger exits where great people, and lar like 100 plus people, um, working together, having successful exits, learning from an early stage to a successful exit, now wanting to go and do their own things. And I, that's a great way for an ecosystem to seed itself and something that we're seeing more and more in New York. And you get that experience by working at that company. I think Jeff's 
advice is, is perfect, around 100 people, right? Because at that point, you're going to have the, the structure, the mentorship, the managers in place that you will be coming in and learning from someone. And that's, you know, two to three years, three to four years, I think can be incredibly valuable. And if you're choosing, again, I think you look at the funding history, who they're working with, you reference folks that are working there, but you can get a good sense of the culture and whether that's a culture you want to be part of. And if you, you know, spend putting your time three to four years and have a successful exit, it will make fundraising, founding that co-founder, sort of all the parts that you need to do to start a successful business that much easier. Mm. Well, this is Fort Knox Live. I am John Ford of CNBC here at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We are talking about startup or big company. What should you go work for? What are the different things you need to consider, especially now, 2018 and beyond? And now I think it's time to talk money. Ahmed, you, you've been at a small company, a dozen people. You've been at big company, uh, 40,000 people. Uh, next, you're looking to go into something transportation related. Got your MBA. How important is compensation to you? Cold, hard cash up front. <laughs> uh... I think it is important, but money is not everything. Uh, the, the satisfaction that person gets from the job is way more important. It is more, way more rewarding. You need the cash to, to, to go on life, to pay the bills, but the satisfaction from job is the most important factor to me. So, Jeff, uh, here's where I get worried, because when I started reporting in Silicon Valley, 1999, 2000, it seemed like there weren't quite as many ways that startups had to dilute early employees, to basically make sure they didn't get as rich as the founders and early investors. What are the things that Ahmed should be kind of looking at in those contracts if he is getting to that stage with a startup to make sure that the equity portion of his compensation might actually turn out to be worth something. Yeah, I, I, my general advice to folks is if you're joining a, an early stage company and you're not one of the original founding team members, the likelihood of you hitting a big payday and making you know tens of millions of dollars is low. So f again, focus on people that you can learn from who might become the next PayPal, who, who you could then spin out with and start that next company. But specifically to answer to your question, John, you know the, the most important things are the cap table. How much money has the company raised? On what terms? What does the cap table look like today? What's the 409A valuation, which is what is the valuation that options will be granted at, and how does that compare to the valuation of the company? And a lot of times, founders are reluctant to share that information. It's considered confidential and very sensitive. But it's also an interesting signal. If they are willing to share it, it means that they're probably running a fairly transparent company, and they're willing to be very open with their employees and sort of want them to enjoy the experience and share the wealth as they grow the business. But it is a, it's a touchy subject. I'd say 15 years ago, much less likely for, for founding teams to share that information with new hires. Today, I, I think it's more common, and a lot of most senior execs that are coming into a startup today know to ask those questions. They're asking cap table, uh, valuation, amount of capital that's come in, who's around the table. They're asking questions so they can be smart about making that decision. But on the whole, again, the same reason I give the advice that Andy Ratcliffe gives, search for a company where you're going to learn a lot and work with great people, because the likelihood of you making you know, life-changing money, hitting a Facebook or a Tesla, uh, joining early on is, is low. Um, you know, if it was high, my business would be a heck of a lot easier. <laughs> Jeff, would you Jeff, would you still say, even if you're just starting out, to know the terminology to ask these questions that a senior executive may ask, though you're coming in in a much earlier stage in your career, are important 
important to at least know, to know the terminology. And you may Absolutely. not get the answer that you want, but maybe when you come in, you've asked these questions and you've also said, but I'm flexible. I know I'm working my way to that level, but I can come in as a consultant. I can come in part time. I'm willing to work on a project by project basis because I want to show you the value that I have that I'm giving to the company. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's fair to ask the questions regardless of what stage you're coming in. And, and you'll learn something through that process, and it'll make you more sophisticated and better at having those conversations down the road. And, and then the most important thing, which you highlight, is what the company is looking for is for you to come in and make an impact. And one of the pieces of advice I always give folks is come in on whatever deal the company feels is fair, right? You want something that feels fair, but if you do a great job, that company is going to pay you. They're going to reward you with equity. You know, I can't tell you every quarter we sit down with our portfolio companies and talk about new option grants for superstar employees. Make that bet on yourself, right? Don't worry too much about the entry deal that you're coming in on. Make that bet on yourself. And if you join the right company and you go in and, and do a phenomenal job, it'll work out. So, Raymond, how much do you care cash versus equity looking at, looking at startups? Is that part of the calculation when you're looking at a place? For me, it absolutely is. What I tend to look at is more from a cash standpoint, can I take care of myself? You know, can I afford, you know, I don't want to be going into work wondering, okay, I've got all this equity, but I can't afford to pay my rent, you know? So, what, for me, the way I look at it is definitely the long-term compensation. I'm looking more at, more at equity. For me, that's really the more important thing, and that's obviously... The, the long-term dream you want, you hope to be a part of it, but also you, you hope that because you're going to a smaller company that if you put that confidence in yourself, you'll be able to make those contributions and make it more likely to happen. And so for me, there's the, the more direct relationship between reward and investment is much more direct, and that's something that appeals to me quite a bit. Graham, Jeff says don't expect to get rich unless you're the founder off of your equity. But I guess rich is relative when you're just coming out of school. That's right. You know, six-figure rich is still pretty rich uh, for, for a lot of people. How would you advise people in the early stages of their careers to think about this? Because a startup is going to make the case, hey, you don't need a lot of cash. We're giving you equity. Um, but who knows what that equity ends up being worth? That's absolutely right. I mean, that's why I think, especially at that early stage, this is a long-term investment in your career. And so working at the right company where you're going to grow and develop, and chances are that's not the last place you will work. You will use that as a launching pad for what's next. And so it, particularly at that 100 level plus, you're most likely going to be coming in if you're out of school at a, at a you know, mid or entry level, and your equity will be meaningful and you should ask about it. I think also important thing about that, even if It'll be a great indicator about the culture and what they're willing to share, but they will respect that you have looked into the industry and understand enough about it. And so that's, that's a, just a good tone to set early on. And I think the advice of, you know, get in if you perform really well, you will be compensated is, is excellent advice. And we think about, when we think about our startups and our founders, it's, you know, we love to see an obsession over product and customer and less about competition. And I think coming into your first job, you obsess over doing a great job and moving up in the ranks versus optimizing that first package for salary and equity. Rony, what do you think? Coming out of the gate, has this shifted or influenced your thinking at all about whether you want to try to start something immediately or do something different? Um, I'm not sure. It's, uh, I still have to explore a lot about the field, definitely, uh, especially the industry itself. I'm not entirely sure what's around. I'm still in school, so I did not really look into it. So it's important, I guess, to do the research and to network, like you all said. Yeah, yeah once you're going for your PhD, you're going to finish. So 
Uh, <laughs> you're not going to pull a Zuckerberg on your PhD, probably. No. Um, that's a, yeah. uh, Sharon, you had a lot of tips. Um, I'm going to go to you and Graham and Jeff for just one closing tip, maybe one you want to highlight or give a little bit more detail on that you think you'd like to leave the viewers with. I just think it's important to network, period, for any job, but particularly for going into a startup. You want to network with everyone that you can. You want to be on every social network platform that you can. You want to go to meetups. You want to go to industry events. Um, and you also want to see who is on the board of directors, who is investing in these startups so that you meet those people, too. Because, again, a good word from Jeff, a good word from Graham is going to go really far in the companies that they're supporting. So you want to make sure that you've done that part of your homework, too. Right. So that... The next one, when you are a founder, exactly. you do get that big payday. Exactly. Jeff, uh, your takeaway tip? I think my biggest advice to folks who are coming out of school is think long term, right? That first company you go to, if it becomes the next PayPal, or I'll give you another example, Square. If you joined Square five or six years ago, today that's a $20 billion company. There are folks who are spinning out of Square to start new and innovative companies. We've got a company in the Bay Area called Open Door that started by several folks out of Square. And mm. so, you know, don't worry too much about that first company you jump to. Think about the people you're working with, the industry you're in, and the kind of work that you're doing, and you're at a to make an impact because five, ten years down the road, those may be the folks that you work for or start a company with, and that's where you're, you're going to really start to feel the rewards of, of being successful and all the hard work that you've put in the first five or ten years of your career. Graham, close it out for yeah, us. Great advice. Your... I think those are the two most important things you can focus on. So I'll give a little more tactical uh, advice. <laughs> when So when looking at company opportunities, I would uh, a helpful thing is to sort of follow the money. What was recently invested in and at what stage. So whatever stage you're looking for, whether it's a seed, a series A, or a more developed company, 100 plus employees might be at the series C or series D, look for companies that have recently raised capital and haven't most likely yet put all of their uh, job offerings up. And so there's gonna be situations where if you're networking into that company, you can get a first look. And if you move quickly, you're gonna put yourself in the best position to, uh, to take a role. And so I think that gives you uh, it has the opportunity to give you an unfair advantage when job searching. Getting there first matters a lot. Obviously, then you need to perform an interview and uh, need to fit well with the, with the culture of the firm. But it's a great way to put yourself ahead early on and a very simple thing that you can do uh, by just following closely what's happening from a fundraising perspective. Mm. That gave me a lot to think about. I mean, joining a startup doesn't always mean that you're going to strike it rich. Even if you join pretty early, and even if the startup does well. So, you gotta factor that in. Uh, coming up next week, Dinesh Paliwal is the CEO of Harman International, which makes audio systems for home, car, and more. That company is now part of Samsung. He was part of the team that sold it just a couple of years ago. And Samsung is amping up its focus on music with the new Galaxy Home speaker it announced this week to compete with Apple's HomePod and Amazon's Alexa and Google's Google Home. Um, Samsung just announced that with the uh, Samsung Galaxy Note 9 that it also announced. But anyway, along with all that, they announced this partnership with Spotify across all Samsung devices. So we're going to talk to Dinesh. We're going to find out what's next for high-end music systems. And we're also going to get an update on the subscription movie business. That part's not with Dinesh. But some of you are going to remember a month ago, I had MoviePass's CEO and AMC's CEO on Fort Knox Live. Same show, talking about 
the changing business model for movie theaters, subscriptions. And just like that, just that fast, MoviePass has changed its deal again. So, is it going to keep changing? Is it not going to keep changing? How did MoviePass change its deal? Is AMC's CEO saying, I told you so? We're going to talk about that next week. Meanwhile, subscribe to the podcast on all channels. Go ahead and subscribe on YouTube too to see video of this conversation and future conversations. And meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Fortnox.com. And of course, as always, thank you for lending an ear. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.